Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Lydia Yuknovich, whose collection of stories is titled Verge. Lydia Yuknovich is the author of several books, including The Book of Joan, the Small Backs of Children, uh, The Misfits Manifesto, and The Chronology of Water, which is a memoir. There's also Dora, A Head Case, and this is nonfiction allegories of violence. Yes. Also writes several essays for Guernica and other magazines and publications. Uh, this latest book, Verge, these stories, these were written over several years, finally collected, because uh, I noticed that Beatings was a short film in 2003, so I yeah. guess the the story was before. But you mentioned before we went on the air that, in fact, that story was rewritten. So my orientation to storytelling is that it's a living practice and that the stories we read and the stories we write happen across time and crisscross each other, just like events and memory in a life. So some of the stories in Verge move from one part of my life or another part of my life up into including my life right now. And so what I've curated with the help of the publishers is a kind of stories that move over time and how they've spoken to each other over the years, particularly in terms of the body and memory and a kind of visceral existence between characters. So many of the stories have been rewritten and reformulated and stuck in a particular place inside the book? Some of them. And then the new stories are like the new vertebrae, and they carry the collection. And these stories that are from other times in my life swim in between them. Yeah, because what I noticed is that despite the fact that each of the stories is unique unto itself, there's almost like an overriding theme. Let's hear it. <laughs> well, it's your words, marginalized and outcast in moments of crisis. I think, yeah. Did you <laughs> hit any stories that didn't feel that way? Uh, no. If you read them all, and you can because it's a fairly short book, Correct. in kind of sequence, yeah. eventually you kind of get knocked out because each one of them knocks you out. A little bit. So that theme is familiar to me. I am interested in, see if this makes sense. If it doesn't, I'll try to find another way to say it. I'm interested in that liminal space that people who are not the center of the social world or any world really experience where um, their whole existence is there and they may be vibrating with pain or pleasure or crisis or grief or anger. And I'm obsessed with the idea that that is the story or could be the story for those kind of people whose lives don't hit the mainstream or the big light or the, you know, famosity zone or whatever we're calling it. 
And those have been the people I've loved in my life. I've spent some time in those liminal spaces in my own life. It feels like I'm in the universe to do my little teeny puny part to amplify those kinds of stories and, and illuminate what I think is the beauty inside that difficult or tricky looking feeling territory. And also, if you're the reader, you could take naps. You could take breaks. <laughs> you go swim and come back. Right. The swimming story is a little bit less visceral than the others, though that one is more autobiographical, mm. I would guess. Because you were almost a professional swimmer. Well, swimming was definitely my life for about 21 years, and I got pretty high up the proverbial ladder. I was nationally ranked at one point. Um, but my world of it kind of fell apart when our country didn't go to the Olympics, and it impacted me. It sort of fractured a story I was carrying around. That was okay. 1980, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when you believe in something and you're putting everything into it and then it, it falls apart in front of you from outside sources, which legions of people experience if you live long enough. At this point, it's happened to me over and over again, so <laughs> nobody's narrative holds. But that really changed my life and kind of made a fracture forever. Before we go into your life, which I've sort of read about the edges of it, a couple of questions about stories. Now, you have workshops on short stories? Is that is that what your workshop is? Well, or? I was in academia for 29 years, and I retired from that. Seemed like I filled my quota there. <laughs> and I moved into the private sector, and I opened an art space for anybody who wants to come and sit and do artistic practice across drawing and painting and writing and music. And so we offer these workshops at Corporeal Writing in Portland, Oregon, that pretty much anyone could attend. Uh, there's no academic hierarchy. It's uh, not as expensive as some fancy writing programs. We offer gazillions of scholarships. So the idea is a person who's never dared to utter a word on the page could be sitting next to someone who has published three books and has fancy hair. And that idea is that by writing in a room together, it doesn't matter who's who. It just matters that we make a kinetic artistic practice together. What prompts you, Lydia Yuknovich, to write a short story? What What is the impetus? Do you just sit down and go, Psh, or is there something that kind of goes, hey, wait a second, I just read about this? I wish I could just sit down and go, whatever, that, I wish I could do that. Teach me. <laughs> Teach me, Obi-Wan. <laughs> no, it's more when I, I bet you know what I mean. When you're walking around in life and you encounter something or you read something or you see something and it stays with you and kind of haunts you or itches at you for days and then weeks and it won't go away. Uh, some of it's that, like getting agitated or haunted. But two, for everything I write, I play around inside what I call the literary fragment, no matter what. I make fragments. And some of those fragments won't stop. And those tend to become novels. And other fragments start to have a shape that you can see. And those become essays or stories. What do you mean by a fragment? You know, like um, uh, not a full story, a glimpse or an image or an emotional intensity that you capture in like two pages or less 
and then just let it vibrate and see what it's trying to show you. And so some of them feel like they could extend as long as a novel. Well, let's take an example. There's a story about a gay man who travels from California to Key West. Yes. What was the fragment and how did the fragment come? Let me back up one second. Many, not every single one, but many of the stories in this book are an homage to someone I either know or I'm close to or I'm pretty close to in terms of ideas and body. And this particular one is an homage to a friend of mine who I lived near in Florida when I was swimming in Florida. So the fragment came when I was trying to write one good feeling about having lived in Florida, which I hated <laughs> passionately <laughs> at the time. I wanted it to drop off into the sea. I'm not going to lie to you. But I was attempting to pull a joyful moment, a beautiful moment, from my memory of being there. And the beautiful, joyful moment that came was this man I knew, and he was my best friend at the time. And he probably saved my life just by existing and not giving up on me. And so something happened to him in his life. Not exactly the thing in the story, but a different difficulty where he experienced great loss. And the fragment of trying to recall a beautiful feeling and my friend and my love of him made this fragment. I was able to conjure it. Was the fragment... The memory of him was the fragment, was the character here. The fragment was a memory of us swimming in the Itchituckney River together. And from that small fragment, description, just visceral physical description, came a character who is and isn't him. So the character emerges out of the yep. fragment yep. and then the character finds his or her place. Correct. In fact, that's pretty true for almost all the stories that... Their material conditions are the stew. And once I get the image and the smell and the sound of their material conditions, a character starts to emerge. I think some other people do it the other way around. Well, you know, a lot of people do it. The first thing is they get the voice. Then from the voice, they can kind of conjure up what needs to be conjured up. One of the early stories in the book concerns a young girl who is an orphan and she transports body parts to very wealthy individuals from America. Uh, where did that come from? Because it almost felt as if maybe you saw a headline somewhere. I've seen several headlines. Uh, I've been tracking this particular phenomenon of organ running and the use of children globally for about 20 years now. So I have a whole file of stories and headlines and uh, so her character came again from the conditions I'd been reading about, even though it wasn't a single person I knew about or read about. Uh, but this is another kind of aim in the book is uh, when I read that story uh, to large groups of people, some of them don't know, and I can forgive them for their ignorance, but a lot of people do know that these realities exist, but they don't want to look at them. And so I'm trying to move the reader towards something where they can look at it and it won't harm them, but they'll be remembering, oh, yeah, this does exist and we're not doing much about it. Well, that story also is separated out from a couple of the others and that as a story, it has a real ending. A lot kind of, of these stories kind of 
don't in the same way, which brings up the question to you, when do you know a story is ended? Well, that's a tricky one because for about 30 years now, I've been wrestling with the traditional shape of short stories and novels, including the uh, insistence on plot driving the narrative and climax as the thing you aim at and resolution as how to end it. Uh, I've been wrestling those forms and I'm coming away from them as, yes, that's a beautiful way to tell a story. I was trained in that tradition. I have a PhD in literature. I get it. But there are stories I want to tell move differently. And back to your question, I'm interested in pulling pulling up before that traditional resolution moment in order to activate in the reader that thing I talked about earlier where the character in the situation is vibrating. And it may turn out great, and it may turn out terrible, or there may be death and demise, <laughs> but the moment before so that we can stay with them for a second before the writer cleans it up and makes it aesthetically closed. I actually worked on pulling back from that. And even in The Organ Runner, it it appears to have a traditional ending, but those last lines could mean 10 different things. I've been doing a lot of theater reviews, and I've been going to a lot of theater. And what I've discovered in theater and it seems to separate out from most novels, but it's closer to what you're doing here, is endings that almost feel like stops rather than endings. And I'm not sure what's going on there because, uh, you know, a play is much longer. Right. But it seems, there seems to be some kind of connection. That's very fascinating to me. I wish we'd gone to a couple together so we could then <laughs> sit and talk about it. That's interesting, though. So they arrest. It's almost like without having to wrap up in a little bow and just kind of, that's the end. I'm for the, it. It goes dark. I'm for it. You know why? I think I'm for it because that feels true to life to me, that you're moving through your experience. You don't get a beginning, a middle, and an end feeling. It doesn't last for 30 to 45 minutes like a television program. You're moving through the thing, then it stops, and you're kind of standing there bewildered. (laughs) I mean, I wish our lives had comfortable resolutions and endings, but they sort of don't, and so maybe I'm for that. (laughs) I'm definitely more influenced as a writer by theater and painting and music, and even poetry, the last thing I'd put on that list is prose in terms of influences. What about writers like Ann Beattie? Love. I mean, when I was coming up in college and graduate school, I read the hell out of her. And she was partly me learning about the tradition, but her realism was trickier than people seem to have noticed. I mean, to me, it kind of agitated realism in a way that I loved. I don't know what you think, but... I interviewed her last year, Mm -hmm. and I've interviewed her a couple of times, and what we do is talk about the nature of short story, which is kind of interesting because most people don't read short stories. It doesn't make any sense to me because we're all walking around saying we live in this new reality where no one has any time and all information and image is in sound bites and data and small pieces. It, you'd think short stories were the perfect form for right now. I don't know. You know, wake up. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> There's another story about a suicidal woman and her husband. 
where did that one come totally from? fictional so that story is actually a series of uh, agitated women fragments that thread through the whole book and they all start with titles like a woman doing whatever and they're meant to come in and out they're meant to not have a resolution they're meant to just vibrate and that one in particular is meant to catch a woman the moment before she either saves her own life or not. Inside the old trope of women need saving, women need a hero to come save them. And so this poor husband, <laughs> who's kind of in the schmuck position, but he's waking up because he's not going to do it anymore. He's figured out he shouldn't try to save her anymore. When he realizes she's not going to jump, yeah. let other people save her. That's right. That's right. And I could see that one on film. You know, I could I could see it from life in New York, not that I've ever lived anything like that. Well, Beatings is another story. Now, that's an older one mm -hmm. that transformed, mm -hmm. and it became a film. Mm -hmm. So what was the transformation between original story, film, and then what's in Verge? Well, the original story came from an autobiographical place with my second husband. No, my third husband. You lose track after a while. That's a lot of husbands. So they say. Um, an, an event that led to a fragment in my life. An event in our real lives that led to a descriptive fragment that then led to that story. And that story, if you ever have a look at it, anybody, it has a cadence or a rhythm to it more than a lot of them. And that cadence comes from me watching him hit the heavy bag in the yard. So some of the language I was trying to mold around what physically it looked like to me through the window. And so I even let plot and sense drop away a little bit because I was so interested in that rhythm. And then the film version was made by Andy Mingo, my husband, and he gave it like a visual representation, black and white guy kind of facing himself. And then from that image version of it later, the reversion of the story kind of moved the idea over time. And it's not even me, a wife, or him, the husband anymore. It's this motion lives in all of us, this beating how we keep going, how our hearts beat, how we beat ourselves up, how we don't know how to beat out of the situation. It became allegorical. So that's sort of the trajectory. It goes from life to fragment to somebody else making art out of it to coming back to it. And in that way, it's, you know, the love of my life is that storytelling never ends and it can always change. It doesn't have to be stasis. So you, you don't have a problem even rewriting these no. stories in 10 years? No, I would love to do that. I'd like to revise some of the novels and make them go a different way. The novel I wrote called Small Backs of Children has five endings at the end of it. I'd like to pursue one of those and like just see what happened. Why not? It's a living practice. I have interviews that go back several years, and one of the fun things I'm doing now is taking these interviews, which are pre-digital. They're yeah. all from the... Uh, mostly 80s and 90s, a couple late 70s, and re-editing them. And the emphasis is different. Because oh, I bet. I'm different. It's like taking 
the same clay and Correct. reconstructing it. Same idea. I mean, I love reading books over and over again every decade because lo and behold, they're completely different <laughs> at 56 than they were at 26. And same with movies. I see it differently. But that's beautiful. It means it's all organic and moving instead of stasis and... Uh, years ago, I saw many Fellini movies, and recently, because I'm doing, I was doing a show about the Fellini retrospective at Pacific Film Archive, I watched like eight of them in a row, again, and you're a different person. I believe it. Oh, yeah. And what hits you now is not the same. Correct. And also, the art I love the most is art that feels like it happened to me. And I left a different person than I was when I walked in. And so I look for that everywhere. Well, one question I ask people, and let me ask you this about different books, not necessarily Verge, but what changes in Lydia Yuknovich after she's written a book? Everything. I mean, I'm writing every story I launch into to try and rearrange my own DNA so that I don't fall prey to the deadening stories coming at us culturally, telling us who to be and how to be. So when I enter artistic practice, I'm attempting to believe in the idea that you can radically change and grow anytime you want. And art is the bridge. Art will help you do that. So that I'm not sitting on the couch bemoaning my age and my lumpiness, <laughs> my inability to swim as far. Going back inside art reminds us that we're alive, and it's scary, and it's thrilling, and it's beautiful, and it's terrible, but that's the stuff of life. And so I come out with, you know, my organs jostled a little bit. The way I stand and the way I walk out the door the next day, I'm not exactly a completely different person, but I can't think the same things or feel the same things as I did before I wrote it. That's worth it. A book like a memoir like uh, Chronology of Water. Nearly killed me. Really? Yeah. What happened? Well, it started coming out of me without my permission. <laughs> that could be taken so many ways that are sideways. I was driving around in my car, and my father had, in a couple of years earlier, drowned in the ocean. And I had been there when it happened, and I pulled him out and saved his life but he was left with severe brain damage, and he had no memory of having been our abuser. And he was a really sweet, nice guy. How weird. It was more weird than you can possibly imagine. Like kind, he was kind, and he'd been brutal. What happens to that underlying anger that has been sitting inside of you all of those years when suddenly this person who you are angry at is a sweetheart. I'll tell you what happens. The chronology of water happens because I'm driving my car. First of all, when I pulled him out of the ocean and I wrote about this and I flipped him over, he was both dead and alive. I could see from the grimace on his face. So I had, this is going to sound brutal and I apologize, I had a kind of killing moment in front of me for this person who tried to kill us basically. And I couldn't do it. I pulled him out and resuscitated him instead. So I had a kind of Hitler moment, and I couldn't let him die. 
But then, yes, it messed me up afterwards. For years, I was carrying around, so what am I supposed to do with this rage and pain now? And that's when some fragments from the chronology water started coming out of me, like at 1 a.m. in the morning. Or, you know, on my drive somewhere, I'd start hearing a voice. Or I'd have to pull over because I would see an image. And there was nothing to do except sit and get them out of me. And I think it was my body saying, I can't hold this. Also, if you keep trying to hold this, it will kill you. What made you decide to make it memoir rather than fiction? Well, I wanted to make it anti-memoir, but uh, at the time, I'll say what I mean by that. At the time, the bookstores said, we won't put it on the shelves if you do that. And what I meant when I said anti-memoir was, again, I had been trained as a writer in the literary traditions we all know about. And Chronology of Water breaks most of the memoir rules. There's not a single unified voice that has authority. The chronology is all broken apart and it's image-driven, it's emotion-driven, it doesn't ever resolve, just all kind of things. Oh, I double back and tell a story over again. Occasionally I lie and come back to it and confess. So that's what I mean by anti-memoir. But they didn't go for that. They also told me, though, they wouldn't shelve it if it had a boob on the cover. If you've seen it, it has a boob on the cover. And that turned out to be wrong, too, because now they're solved. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> boob, no problem. Laurie Moore writes great short stories, but not great novels. Agree. Do, huh? Agree. Why do you think different writers focus in different ways like that? And for you, do you see yourself as more of a short story writer or more of a novelist in that sense? With Laurie, whose work I absolutely adore, I think it might be true that the forms find the writer and... It's just not true that all writers can play inside all the forms. I can't write a poem to save my life, and poetry has been a bigger influence on me than any writing. So I think the forms find the writer. And then for me, again, I don't know if I'm any better at one or the other. I only know those little nuggets or fragments that I make compel me and that I'll probably be swimming inside them the rest of my life. Well, I don't think a writer can make that choice of what's better or worse. No, because you're, you just make you, it your thing. Yeah, I mean, Laurie Moore writes novels because she has to write those I, novels. I, amen, secular amen. And then we get to determine what affects us. Yeah. Let's go back, Lydia Yoknovich. Let's go back and look at how you became a writer. Now, I got some autobiographical material here. You grew up in a pretty difficult household with an abusive father mm -hmm. and an absent alcoholic mother. Yes. Did you read? I, I closet read. I read books I wasn't supposed to be reading. Like? Hello, God, It's Me, Margaret. Frankenstein, which to this day remains my favorite book of all time. Did you read Frank Kissstein by Jeanette Winterson? Of course. I interviewed her about it last month. She is, this is me beating my heart. <laughs> she is beloved to me. My sister, who was eight years older than me, kind of made me perform Shakespeare plays with her. And I was like 10 or 11 and 12, and so I'm playing Romeo <laughs> She gave me all the dude parts. <laughs> she got to be the fair maiden, and I got to be the dude. 
And so those early literary imaginary worlds uh, made sense to me because they were escape places. Did you read science fiction? I read a little bit of science fiction. Like I remember reading when I was very young, Jules Verne, loving the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea idea, of course, because I was already a swimmer in the deepest, most profound way. And I read A Wrinkle in Time, and I thought, you can do this? This is amazing. I read all of C.S. Lewis. So those early readings brought me to, you know, a love of sci-fi in my adult life, and I've never stopped reading it. I love all of it. I love the low art versions. I love the high art versions. I'll read any of it. And also, I'd like to remind everyone, sci-fi writers were correct about everything. (laughs) We've been reading them wrong. Well, it's kind of weird to realize that at some point you walk into the world and it's somewhere between uh, the marching morons and Philip K. Dick. Completely. Philip K. Dick like made a map. I mean, we may as well just read them as maps at this point because they were all correct. At what point did you begin writing? I did not start what I consider writing until I was in my mid-20s. Same thing, where it just started coming out of me. It was coming out of a place of sort of crisis and trauma. I'm going to say a sad thing now. I had just lost my daughter, who was born and died the same, all in the same day. And in that period, I went into psychosis for a little bit, and I started living under an overpass for a little bit. You're homeless? Uh-huh. And... I also want to say this, though. I gravitated toward people that felt comforting to me, who understood what I was saying and thinking. So about that time in my life, I want to say it felt too much to be in the regular world where people were coming at me with questions and here will make you better. And I felt I needed a comfort tribe of people who understood deep grief and psychosis. And in that period of time, I had a red notebook. And in that red notebook, I was scribbling, I mean, Ted kaczynski size writing, little scribble, scribble, scribble. And later in life, when I kind of came out of that terrible time and got some help and got back into school and got counseling and medication, I looked in the red notebook and in between the scribble weird hieroglyphics were stories about girls who something bad was about to happen to them, but they saved their own lives. And those became the first stories I ever wrote. So it kind of came out of a place of trauma, which is why I said the birth of my daughter kind of birthed writing in me even though it was the worst thing ever. When you found that and you began writing, at that point you'd gotten back on your feet and you were in school again? Eventually. <laughs> took a little while. I'm, <laughs> I'm shortening the story. So what prompted you to finally send something out and where did it go? The first thing I sent out was to the Northwest Review at the University of Oregon where I was an undergraduate. And it was an experimental lyrical story about a woman digging a hole in the dirt. And they took it, and they published it, and I, and I was like, what is this publishing? What is this? Because <laughs> I was just trying to stay alive. But very early on in my first set of writing, I wrote a short story by entering a creative writing class, which I'd never been in, with real creative writers, taught by a great writer named Diana Abu Jabber. 
and I wrote a piece made of 10 fragments, like we've been talking about, called The Chronology of Water. And all the fancy writers in the class said, bah, this isn't a story. These are poetic lyric fragments. And I went home, you know, like I'm going to stick my head in the toilet. I suck. I don't know what I'm doing. And she pulled me aside and she said, it absolutely is a story. They don't know what they're talking about. And someday you're going to write a book. David Shields, I don't know if you... <laughs> I'm pumping my heart again. Love him, beloved. Yeah, he he, he this is his thing. I mean, the, the anti-story, if right. you want to call it right. that. Right, we're friends. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm yeah, I've for interviewed him. him a couple of times. Your first novel, what was that? My first novel was The Small Backs of Children. I wrote it before the chronology of water, but it wasn't... It hadn't finished finding a form yet. And the chronology of water kind of helped me straighten out what the form could be, if that makes any sense. And I got braver about this fragment business, much braver. <laughs> so right now you don't care. You just start no, writing. No, now I'm in it. Go. I'm like, you don't want to read it? That's fine with me. Get out of my way. <laughs> um, but I'm wrong about that. My first novel is actually Dora, a head case, which is meant to be a classical farce like Ben Jonson, Shakespeare times, classical farce. It offended a great many people, but some people loved it for its farceness. And I wrote it because I needed some farce after writing The Chronology of Water so I didn't just drown, you know, in grief. Uh, so that was my fun book. It was the most fun I ever had. I loved writing that character, and she's completely irreverent and sassy, and she gives Freud some comeuppance. Do you ever think about going to some of these short story characters and building a novel about them? All the time. Really? Yeah. There's a story that didn't make it in this book. In Verge. In Verge. That is absolutely feeding its way into the novel I'm working on right now. And I'm glad because I think that's where it belongs, where it was supposed to be. You mentioned theater before. What about working in theater or film? Because your husband's a filmmaker. I would love to. I've tried to write screenplays, and they're just abysmal. I'm terrible at it. I think something about the form like, makes me feel like I'm trying to write with no arms or something. I don't know what's wrong with me. Uh, but I am a film junkie. I have been since I was eight. So I'm in, you know, I'm in the film world every day and night of my life. And um, it's okay with me that I'm not the one making it. But my husband and Kristen Stewart are finishing the screenplay for Chronology of Water. So we'll see if that turns into something or not. What has he done? He's co-writing and he's producing and he also kind of keeps an eye on it. Uh, I'm just thrilled that somebody else is making art riffing off of my art. I love artistic collaboration, and so that makes me really excited. So you wouldn't care if somebody took one of your books and just threw it up in the air and watched where the pages landed? No, I love that idea. Really? I love that idea. I'm not territorial about my own art, and I love reassemblage. I love collaboration. I love, you know, some of my mentors were Kathy Acker, whose mentor was William Burroughs. So the idea that you could cut things up and move them around is going to stay with me forever. And again, Frankenstein, greatest book of all time. What makes you think that? A couple of things. One, I have a, a deep love, devotion, interest in the monster, culturally, and... The way that monster is produced 
in the storyline is not his fault, and the way the culture wants to kill him is not his fault. It's that Shakespeare, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine moment, and, and the monster learns the culture and the language and turns around and like, what? You want to kill me? <laughs> you just me. That scenario is deeply, deeply moving to me. But I also love it because of the age of the girl that wrote it. And her body and her mother's body and a history of children who died in their bodies resonates for me. And then lastly, I love it because the story coming from the creature is the return of the repressed speaking back to a culture that would kill it. That's a motif I think it would be a good idea to puzzle on right now. The monster is hero. Right. And the monster is not the monster. Right. The monstrousness is in the makers. You know, when reading Verge, I kept thinking, because this is about, quote, misfits, and I kept thinking myself as the misfit, though others may not necessarily see me as a misfit. Right. Do you think everybody on some level is a misfit? No. I no. mean, yes. Because everybody screws up or wears two different socks or doesn't do it right or gets fired. You know, So in some ways, yes, everybody on the planet. It's a human default to right. be a little misfitted. But then there's something else that I want to keep insisting on that, there are some of us who just our entire lives slightly slip from the main paths available to seemingly everyone else. And what I want to say about it is not, look at us, we exist, although we do. What I want to say about it is we have a skill set out there, and it might be good to have a talk with us or a look at us and ask us what that skill set is because we may be in a time right now where those are the skills we need because we're the people who've endured when we shouldn't have. We're the people at the edges of things in all kind of different definitions. Right. Not just you and me, but other kinds of outsiderness, obviously. But I mean, a thing to remember about the edges is that the edges are always in motion and kind of vibrating, and they also give the center its only hope of a shape. Do you ever think about writing fiction based on current politics, or does that just, because politics changes on a daily basis, is that kind of impossible? No, fiction's the greatest form for that because fiction is always in flux. Um, the first story in the book, The Pull, came from, I wrote that very recently. And I wrote it from a series of photographs that we've all now seen internationally of children washing up on beaches and uh, refugees trying to save their own lives. So I'm happy to dip into current events and politics because fiction is the form, I think. Lydia Yuknovich, are you working on a novel now? Yeah. You want to help me finish it? <laughs> you're past fragments, but you're not putting them together or what? I'm past fragments. It's polyphonic, meaning for those who aren't as nerdy and obsessed as I am, it has many voices rather than a single hero voice. I have a lot of the fragments. I'd say I'm still working on what the hell to do with them. <laughs> So come on over, give me a hand. Well, one thing I've noticed about artists in general is before they're famous, they get dismissed as crazy or unsuccessful, all of that, and then suddenly they're artists. And 
oh my, that's an artist. But they haven't changed. Don't you think that's kind of a crock? Yeah. 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 yeah I agree. It's very hard to tell because our society our society doesn't give us the chance to know the difference between what's good and what isn't good, assuming that there's a level on that. And I think the only difference is the difference between good and not good is somehow about what moves you. Yeah, I agree. If if you can feel it in your body and your and it happens to you, I feel like we can ignore some of what critics are telling us and go that I felt that in my body, so meh, noise go away. But also, I will say something from being where I am at fifty six in my own artistic career. I've I've adored being in the pocket because everybody leaves me alone, and I can make whatever the hell I want. And I can push to the limits my own ideas and go to the craziest places. And the more people hear who I am, the more I get the noise coming back at me. And so there's something beautiful about having been in the pocket. And I'm also capable of stepping into the world at this point because I'm old. It's not going to bother me. (laughs) One final question. As a writer, how do you keep that internal critic's voice silent? I gave them some cookies and put them in the corner and gave them some things to do like guard the perimeter. I literally imagined, you know, a tough critical figure who's good at fighting and I put them in my mind at the perimeter so they could guard it and now they have something to do. And so do you. Yeah. You've been listening to an interview with Lydia Yuknovich whose latest collection of short stories is Verge. Can somebody find beatings on YouTube these days? I think so. I'm relatively certain. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous short film. Of course, I'm a little biased. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.